0: And I got thrown in jail and that is exactly what I needed to uh, stop using enough to clear my head a little bit. And then my dad sent me a letter and he said, hey, it's time, you know, check out AA. So I I, uh, requested a big book and I sat in my jail cell and I read it and um, I was ready at that point.
1: Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast. My name is Alfredo. I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for being here. Today I'm sitting here with Beck and actually Patrick, his father. We are recording this in Longmont, Colorado. Um, and what do you call this place? A yurt. A yurt. Yeah. What goes on here, man?
0: Well, we. Uh, uh, my brother's wife does um, yoga. She teaches yoga in here, and uh, me and my brother do jujitsu in here. We bring the mats in and do jujitsu.
1: It's really cool. Yeah,
0: and they do other things too, other uh, hippie kind of ceremonies.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you're from California.
0: Well, I live in California. I, I'm uh, I'm from I'm, I was raised in Colorado. All
1: right, why don't you tell us about uh, your life today?
0: Well, I'm a, uh, certified substance use disorder counselor. Um, I work at a men's residential recovery, uh, home in San Diego, California. And, uh, I've spent the last, you know, a few years as a counselor, just working with other, uh, alcoholics and addicts and trying to help them get sober.
1: Nice. Um, When's your sober date?
0: My sober date is, is 6-13-2015. Yeah, a little over five years now.
1: Nice. Yeah. So outside of work, what are some of the things that you do for fun?
0: Well, my favorite thing to do now is uh, jujitsu. I uh, I train at 10th Planet San Diego. It's a, like one of the best uh, jujitsu schools in the country, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, I'm a blue belt under Richie Martinez. Who's uh, he's one of the highest level jiu-jitsu competitors in, in the country, in the world right now. So uh, yeah, jiu-jitsu is like my favorite thing to do, hunting, obviously, that's why I'm out here. Uh, and uh, and that's that's pretty much it, jiu-jitsu um, recovery stuff, and uh, I like to hunt too.
1: So I get the feeling that Understanding since what you're doing now is in the recovery business, you got a long journey that got you there. Mm -hmm. Um, Why don't you go ahead and just share, you know, what it was like, what happened, what it's like today, and how you got to where you're at.
0: Okay. So when I was – I started drinking when I was probably like 12 or 13 years old. I remember the first uh, drink that I had was – a uh half of a old e40 i think it was, or no it was mickey's a mickey's 40 I drank half of it uh got drunk with my buddies and had a blast and then from there i would drink as often as i possibly could um and when i could uh i obviously couldn't do it around the parental unit so i had to uh uh, stay at my friend's houses and get drunk with them. And so every chance I got, I would get drunk. And then, uh, when I was 18, I joined the military. Um, and in the military, uh, same thing, whenever I had some free time, I would get drunk and I got in a lot of trouble cause I was underage. I was still, you know, 18, 19 years old. Um, and I, I had a lot of, uh, alcohol related incidents as they called them in the, in the military. And by the time I was 21, I spent, I, I did three years in the Navy before I got, uh, an other than honorable discharge because I had so many alcohol related incidents. My, my, um, division tried to save me because I was a good, uh, sailor. You know, I worked hard and stuff when I was sober, but I was always getting drunk and doing stupid shit, uh, you know, in my off time getting DUIs and getting in fights and stuff like that. So eventually they, they got sick of it and they kicked me out. And then I moved, well, like I stayed in San Diego and, uh, I had a lot of money saved up from the military, not not a lot, but like $10,000 and I just partied that money away. And about that time when I was like 21 or 22 years old, um, I was drinking like every night and going to parties and stuff. And then I started doing other drugs like ecstasy and Coke and uh, eventually methamphetamine and started snorting meth and then smoking it. And then eventually that was my thing. Um, By the time I was 22 or 23, like I was heavily into meth doing it every day.
1: So um, how does somebody get sold on meth? Because it's not, like, a very sexy Right. Well, thing.
0: because you're drunk when you do it. You know, you, would mm-hmm. never do, you wouldn't never, you wouldn't do it sober. Right. So at a party, somebody busts them out, and you snort a line, and you're like, wow, oh, that's pretty fun. And then next thing you know, and it's like a weekend thing, and the next thing you know, you're doing it every day. Mm-hmm. And then you're smoking it because it's better than snorting it, you know. I never got into the uh, injection stuff, but the only reason i didn't is because i was afraid that i'd love that so much that uh that i i wouldn't be able to stop that too so and that's why i never tried heroin too because i knew uh, like from the way that it looked and from what i've heard it's the best you know and if i did that it would just be even worse so yeah
1: yeah so you're moving full speed ahead at this point yeah. in your addiction and just uh i mean trying drugs some other stuff and still going through your alcoholism just kind of and it's become a daily thing at this mm-hmm. point
0: yep all right drinking daily and uh, using meth daily and and eventually you, you I, the alcohol I kind of got away from it like I, I wasn't drinking as much as I, I used to because I was doing meth and uh, alcohol just doesn't do the same thing for you when you're when you're doing meth uh, but I was a, like a functional drug addict for probably about eight years I held a job. Um, but I eventually got fired from that job because I couldn't, um, go to work unless I was high. And if I didn't have drugs, if I didn't have meth, I couldn't make it to work. So I'd call in late or or call in sick. And, um, I got warned about that, you know, tons of times. And eventually, you know, my boss got fed up with it and fired me for that. So then, uh, so then I was an unemployed drug addict, with a habit like a hundred dollar a day habit, and um, at that point I was trying. <laughs> uh, the first time I got a felony conviction was uh, when I was I needed money. I was on Craigslist. This is the dumbest uh, thing I've ever done, right here. Went on Craigslist. I was looking to sell some things, and I saw somebody on there say. Um, I'm looking for Tina. Can anybody help me out? And Tina is like code word for meth. And I was like, oh, I I could do that. So I I sent the guy a text. I was like, hey, I could hook you up. I went and uh, got a front from my drug dealer. And I drove it to this guy who turned out to be an undercover cop (laughs) and arrested me. Uh, So I got charged with a felony there. And... I manipulated my way through the court system and told them that I had a gambling problem and I was raising money to, for gambling. I didn't do drugs because I knew that if I told them I did drugs, they would send me to a rehab and I'd have to get tested. So I manipulated my way through that to where they just thought I had a gambling problem and I'd never had to get, uh, uh, you know, go to rehab or get drug tested. Mm. And, I hired a lawyer on that one, and so my law- my lawyer like, you know, angled his way to where I didn't have to do any jail time. I just had uh, community service, and I had to go to GA meetings, Gamblers Anonymous, which I did like to gamble though. I was I I did like to gamble. I I was I'm such an addict. Uh, but anyway, so I went to that's that was like my f- not my f- that was my first experience at. Any kind of uh, anonymous type meeting, as as a um, real kind of alcoholic, I had been sent to the to AA when not. I wouldn't say real alcoholic. I don't know. It was just like the first time when I, I was really kind of listening it was in the GA meeting. I had been sent to AA when I was like sixteen years old. I remember being in AA meetings because my dad and uh, stepmom put me into some outpatient thing because I was getting into you know, trouble with alcohol. And part of that outpatient was to, uh, go to AA meetings. And so I was in AA meetings in in Colorado when I was like 16 years old, but it was a, it was a stupid cult to me at that time. And when I was 21, I got DUI when I was in the Navy and, uh, I would get drunk and then go to the meetings because I thought they were all bullshit. But at this point I knew I had some problems, you know, with alcohol and drugs I, uh, and I went to these GA meetings and was listening and some of this stuff kind of hit home, but still I wasn't ready. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I've manipulated my way through the system to not get in trouble for the, for the, uh, selling the meth to the, to the cop. Um, I moved to Texas for a while to flip houses and, uh, I was able to f- find meth in, uh, in like less than a day. I went on a, yeah, I went on the Craigslist, looked up uh, hookers because I know that they're they're uh, they have drug problems themselves and uh, <laughs> and i um, I said I don't want to have sex or anything, I just need to get some drugs and this I'll give you a hundred dollars if you hook me up with somebody that could get me some meth and so I did that and that's how I got my meth in Texas and uh, I came back to San Diego eventually and um, was hanging out with some drug dealer chick and the cops raided the hotel room and I got um, charged again with another felony sales charge, even though it wasn't my dope or whatever. Uh, but I was in the room and I was like helping her drive around town to sell drugs. So they they connected me with that. And, and I got thrown in jail. And that is exactly what I needed to uh, stop using enough to clear my head a little bit. And then my dad sent me a letter and he said, Hey, it's time, you know, check out AA. So I, I, uh, requested a big book and I sat in my jail cell and I read it and, um, I was ready at that point.
1: Um, while you were in jail, mm-hmm. uh, how did you feel physically? Like, did it take a while? To, yeah. Well, um, the detox—it
0: was gnarly, man. Because I had been doing meth every day for 13 years, you know. So I—I I had tried to quit on my own, but I just couldn't do it because it's just—it's just so depressing and so uh, you're just so tired and depressed and everything sucks. You know, everything sucks without meth. But uh, so the first two weeks in jail, I was just sleeping all day all day, every day, when I, I would eat like maybe one meal a day and then just sleep the rest of the time. And eventually I started feeling a little bit better. And then, uh, I was able to, you know, send a letter to my dad and, and, and that's, that was like sort of my for, my first, um, fifth step, uh, even though I didn't know, I didn't know it at the time, but I remember writing a letter to my dad saying, I, cause they, they didn't know they, I mean, my dad knew I was an alcoholic." And I'm sure that he suspected some other things, but nobody knew. I didn't tell my brother. I didn't tell my dad. Nobody knew for sure uh, how deep my addiction was. Um, but I, I told my dad in this letter, like I've been, you know, lying and cheating and stealing and doing drugs every day. And and that was very cathartic to send that letter um, just, to just get it off my chest. You know, it was like the first kind of fifth step that mm-hmm. I did. Uh, but yeah, I felt like shit for the first two weeks and then I started to feel better and
1: yeah. After you wrote that letter, obviously it sounds like you got some relief from mm-hmm. there. Um, what were some of the next steps that you took in jail? Like, you had a big book, but were there meetings?
0: No, no meetings in jail. Uh, there was this there was this kid that had uh, that was in jail for uh, I think carjacking or something. But he told me he was a crackhead, <laughs> and he told me that he uh, he had 18 months sober at one point. And he saw me reading the book and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I was into that for a while. And, and he and I started reading the book together and doing our own sort of like little meetings um, by ourselves. But uh, there was this piece of shit uh, that, OK, in jail in California and in prisons or jails in California, it's racially segregated. So you have the whites and the blacks and then the, the Mexicans. And there's a key holder, they call it, the, like the leader for the whites, me and, me and uh, this, this kid, were sitting reading the big book in, in my bunk. And the leader for the whites goes and sits in between us and sees us both what we're doing. And he pulls out a little bag of meth and, he, and, a, and a pipe too. And, uh, and it, I mean, it's just such a douchebag move because he knows what we're doing. And this kid that I'm, and I'm, I'm, I was at this point, I'm done. I'm done with drugs. I'm done with all this shit. Um, because it, I, I had wanted to quit for years before I did. It was just miserable for the last few years. But this guy sits in between us and pulls out this bag of meth and, like, you know, prays. Uh, he's trying to prey on us. He's trying to, to get us to do drugs, and the, the kid, the young kid, did it. He actually went and got high with that guy, so... It wasn't the best place for recovery. I'll just tell you that. How accessible are drugs
1: when you're locked up? Man, you up?
0: would you would be surprised. They, these guys were getting high in there every single day, man. Um, you know what fentanyl is. Mm-hmm. So they uh, they would have. The, the, there was one guy I know for sure that would have his girlfriend because fentanyl is on a very thin little strip. You could get on very thin strips. She would send him mail. And put it behind the postage she would cut a a strip out and put it behind the postage stamp and he would get mail they would inspect it open it they wouldn't see that the 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 uh, fentanyl was behind the postage stamp and he would get it and he would cut it up into little pieces and then everybody in the in the unit would be getting high and I guess you know they're they're uh putting drugs up their ass you know when they come in they know they're going to jail and they would put stuff up their ass and then you know, bring it out. So there was meth in there and heroin, or you know, fentanyl in there for sure. And people were getting high every day. People were offering me drugs. I, I got offered drugs like three times when I was in jail.
1: How did you uh, cope with that?
0: Well, like I said before, man, I was
1: one. Like you were to defenseless. Me, it, it like I would feel defenseless.
0: Yeah, I I don't I don't know, man. I, I guess just uh, I my higher power, or mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, but I just wasn't. Into it, man. I, I had when I had got that detox. I knew that I never wanted to do that again, you know. And I, and this was like the chance that I got to get sober, and uh, um, I just wasn't into it. Jail doesn't seem like a fun place to get high to me.
1: Um, so I don't think jail was really your program. Um, no. Nope. What? How did you transition out of jail and into society?
0: So when I got out of jail, I actually uh stayed um <laughs> at my I stayed at my drug dealer's house the first uh, <laughs> few days I got out and um but I was going to meetings though I actually went to meetings and I, I found a guy that would sponsor me like I I asked for a sponsor the first day I, I got into a meeting and um so I was working with those guys you know from AA but um I stayed at my drug dealer's house for the first few days but my drug dealer was we were friends, you know. So he was cool. He kind of like understood, and I would just chill out in in a room at his house, and they would be all doing, doing drugs and stuff on the mm. in, in the other room. You had but. practice in prison, yeah. Like resisting, yeah, yeah. But I just, I just wasn't, I wasn't gonna do it. The, there was one time, like when I first got out of jail, that I, I was walking by this liquor store, and uh, I really thought a beer would be a great idea. But I I didn't do it because I knew if I I started drinking, I'd probably just start drugging again, too. Mm -hmm. So um, when I got out of jail, then I started uh, then I kind of reconnected with my girlfriend at the time and she took me back in. And then I just started getting deep into AA, uh, going every day, um, getting an actual sponsor and working the steps, you know, and that's what uh, that's what, you know, kept me sober is doing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, steps one through nine, you know, were awesome, especially step nine, because I had so much guilt and shame built up over the years that uh, it was just really awesome to be able to make amends to to everyone that I've harmed and just clear the wreckage of my past, as they say.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So you were going to meetings uh, regularly? Yes. And how long um, have you been doing that, or were you doing that?
0: Well, I was doing that for about a year. Um, I was a year sober, and I was trying to find a job, which was tough as a guy with two felonies on his record. Um, and I remember one, I had, a, I had just about a year, maybe a little under a year sober, and I, I was interviewing for this job, and I did a Skype interview, and I did uh, a face-to-face interview, and then they told me, You this was they called me on a Thursday and they said, "Okay, it looks like you got the job. You're going to start on Monday at eight o'clock. You know, we're just going to run a background check on you. And then um, and and if everything is cool, you'll have a job on Monday. So the next day they sent me an email and said, sorry, you know, because of my background. And and at that point, I was like, what the fuck am I doing with all this uh, AA bullshit? You know, I've been doing the right thing for a year. Fuck this. I'm going to go get loaded. And I and instead of doing that, I drove to this meeting called the Every Nighters meeting. It's at nine thirty. It's kind of a rowdy young crowd, and uh, I went to that meeting, and there was a guy there who had like stage four cancer or some shit. It, it, he was he was gonna die within six months, and he was there, and he took his ninety day token, and and that right there like saved me from relapsing because this guy is gonna die in six months, and he's got his he's taking his thirty day token. He's going out sober, you know, and I'm crying about, I can't get a job, you know, living in the greatest country in the world, uh, with the most opportunity. So it's not that I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get the job that I wanted, you know? Mm. So at that point I made the decision to go back to school and, uh, I, I, I was, uh, actually, no, it was a little bit while I start I was sponsoring people at this point. And I was sponsoring guys and I couldn't find that job still. So I went back to school to be a drug counselor because I knew that I liked working with other drunks and other drug addicts. And I loved the way that it felt when, you know, when you see a light, you know, go off in a guy's eyes and he gets it, you know, there's nothing better than that feeling. So I went to school to be a drug counselor and I went to San Diego city college and I, I entered in their uh, alcohol and other drug studies program and, um uh, started going to school so
1: um while you're going to school you're um also still in the program mm-hmm. and eventually you finish school
0: and you land okay, yeah, I've kind of left something out so when I got out of jail, shit I forgot about this so when I got out of jail, one of the terms of my probation was to go to treatment so um I had about, I I got out of jail and I had about six months, um, of time before I had to go to treatment. So, uh, so I was doing AA and then I went to this place called the Heartland house. Um, and I, I did a three month program there. And so fast forward to where I'm at school. I, I, I complete, um, well, I almost complete the school, but there's internship, um, there's an internship part of the class where you have to go and intern somewhere. So I did my internship at the Heartland House, the place that I went to rehab at, and uh, they hired me after about a month. So that's where I. Uh, so I work at the place that I went to rehab. Um. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, and then, I I had to intern for like two thousand. 2,040 hours or something like that. And then I took the state exam and I got um, certified by the state after school and internship and then state exam.
1: How similar is that to sponsorship? Well,
0: it's it's a lot different because in uh, in a clinical setting, like in the rehab setting, you, you can't... Uh, one, I can't sponsor these guys. I'm not sponsoring them. You know, I'm just kind of um, showing them kind of showing them things about uh, like, I'm kind of more educating them about addiction and uh, alcoholism than anything. We do process groups and stuff too, but I can't sponsor them because it's, it's an ethical boundary because you, you, you become too close to people and that could be very uh, heartbreaking, you know, in this field when, when you're dealing with, you know, hundreds of guys a year, um, I, I, you just got to set clinical boundaries, and you can't sponsor these guys. So it's 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 different. It's more of an education. You're just kind of educating them, but a sponsorship is a way more personal. You're learning a lot more about the person. Um, they're telling you their deepest, darkest secrets, kind of stuff, you know. And and that's just kind of not appropriate in a in a clinical setting. So it's it's a lot different. But I still I still uh, help these guys. Um, well. They help themselves, but uh but also like I still get that good feeling from um helping some guys and seeing it click in some guy's head, you know, um, yeah, so do you uh, go to meetings still? Yeah. I go to like, do, do I personally go to meetings still? Yeah. 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 And I go to sponsoring still. Or yes. Or I go to meetings. I, I've, I sponsor guys every once in a while. It's just, uh, it's kind of hard to find time to do it. Um, but yeah, I will. If someone asks me to sponsor them, I will sponsor them. Yeah. You know, that's great. Um, but I just don't, you I mean, I'm sure you know how it is. Like guys will say they want you to sponsor them. And then mm-hmm. when it comes and then when we get to the fourth step, it's, you know, they usually bail mm. a lot of times. Yeah. But um, yep, I will sponsor guys. I don't have any sponsees right now, but uh but yeah, I've been sponsoring. But you're guys. still in it yeah. in the program oh, yeah. and uh yeah.
1: it's like your whole life right now. My whole
0: is, life is kind of recovery based. That's right. Yeah.
1: It's recovery based.
0: Yeah.
1: Um if you could summarize like your entire journey, which Like, at what moment do you feel like you you finally got it? Like, what did it? What was that like?
0: Well, the the moment, um, let's see, the moment that I finally got it, I think, well, I I know that going to jail was a big thing. It was something that I needed to stop, to stop using, to get a, a clear head. But the moment that I finally got it, or the moment that I knew that I wanted to be sober for the rest of my life is... When I completed my ninth step, making the amends to my dad and to my brother, you know, um, those were huge things in my life, uh, to just clear the wreckage of my past. So when I did that, um, that's when I felt like I felt comfortable in sobriety Mm. because a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of being sober is uncomfortable in the beginning there's actually a recovery progression, and it and it starts with abstinence. Um, but This is the recovery progression is for when you when you get sober. It starts with abstinence, which is like you're white knuckling it, and then um, you go into sobriety, which is you're just a little bit more comfortable, but it's still, you know, not the best feeling. And then it gets into comfortable living, which is where you are finally comfortable in sobriety, and then productive living, where you could start getting a job and dealing with your family and all that stuff, you, you start thinking about normal life issues instead of just recovery, mm. you know, and those first three are the first two in abstinence and sobriety. All you're thinking about is how do I stay sober till tomorrow? What are your challenges today? As far as sobriety goes? Sure. You know, like well, it's all about stress management, man. Um, I, I rarely think about drinking or or using now, but it's, but my addiction manifests itself in other ways, like compulsive behaviors, like eating. I'll eat like a fucking hog at a trough, (laughs) dude, (laughs) or, uh, uh, you know, sex, gambling, all these other things. This is, these are things that I teach my, my clients that, um, you know, when you get sober, you you're, 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 your addiction will manifest itself in compulsive behaviors um, like uh, uh, sex or, or dieting or exercising or gambling or working, you know, um, or escape, you know, you'll sit and watch Netflix all day. That that is not healthy. And, and so a big thing that a lot of people in AA, I think miss as well, um, are these compulsive behaviors that have really nothing to do with, at least, like on the on the outside, they have nothing to do with drinking or drugging. Um, like if I if I if I if I uh, go to you know McDonald's and eat two Big Macs, I don't see how that relates to drinking and using. But it does. If I keep doing that stuff, I'll feel like shit. I'll be an angry person, and then I'll start uh, thinking that drinking is a good idea. You know, so those little things, those little compulsive behaviors, will will build up. So now for me. It's managing stress, managing my compulsive behaviors. When I don't go to the gym uh, for like two days in a row, I know I need to check myself. When I go to McDonald's and I and I eat two double whoppers or whatever, I know I need to check myself. You know, when I start engaging, when I when I watch Netflix all day, I need to check myself. So those little things that have nothing to do with drugs and alcohol are what will bring me down and what bring a lot of people down. You know, if I'm if I'm uh, Emotionally overreacting to something. If I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, you know, I need to check myself. I need to go to meetings, and meetings are a great place to, you know, call yourself out or tell on yourself, you know, about those things. Hmm. And then, and as they say, you know, those, those things, uh, they grow in darkness and they die in the light of exposure. Just like cravings, they they grow in the in the darkness and they die in the light of exposure. If you if you feel like drinking or using, tell somebody, man, expose it.
1: Now, if you could go back, this is the final question okay. um, and give yourself a piece of advice at some point, when and what piece of advice would you give yourself?
0: Well, um, uh, yeah, well, I would, I would obviously say knowing what I know now, I'd obviously say, don't take that first drink, man, when I'm 12, 13 years old, um, but I heard plenty of that at that time, you know. I heard plenty of that "don't drink," it's that will ruin your life type stuff. So, I I don't know, man. Um, I guess, you know, I I I'm not gonna regret the past, nor mm-hmm. wish to shut the door on it. You know, uh, I I if if it were if it were a perfect world and I could go back in time, I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't start drinking in the first place, but can't do that so now it's just about moving moving forward
1: thanks beck for sharing your experience strength and hope with us today listeners thanks for checking out episode number nine of the recovery edgecast don't forget you can subscribe to our podcast on spotify apple podcasts and at the recoveryedgecast.com we'll see you next time